1853. Okay, in 1853. I keep telling people I don't need the microphone. In 1853, Theodore Parker, Unitarian minister and radical abolitionist, spoke of the moral universe whose arc is a long one. It bends toward justice. More than a century later, Martin Luther King Jr. declared the arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. In December 2013, journalist Rebecca Solnit wrote on TomDispatch.com, sometimes Martin Luther King's arc of the moral universe that bends towards justice is so long, few see its curve. So what is this talk about bending the arc of the moral universe toward justice all about? We take a scientific perspective, which science tells us that the universe is impersonal and morally neutral. But conscience and history tells us something different. There are different ways of knowing and there are different kinds of truth. The truth of which Parker was speaking, the truth of which King was speaking, the truth to which Solnit pointed, the truth of which I speak today is moral and metaphorical and just as true and just as incomplete as scientific truth. But the arc of the moral universe is something closer to my experience of human beings than my experience of the impersonal and neutral physical universe. Even in these difficult times, those of us who lived through the 50s and 60s and 70s know that the arc of history has been bent toward justice. But we also know that there are persons and forces trying to bend it back away again. But the question this morning is, who bends the moral arc of, universe, of the universe toward justice? And the answer is, we bend it. So let's try that. Who bends the arc of the universe? We bend it. Okay. Good. We're ready to get serious now. So this arc of history, what was the experience of Theodore Parker in the 1850s and King in the 1960s such that they could assert the hope, indeed the belief, that the arc of the moral universe bends towards justice? It's good to remember that both were speaking in times of deep racism, economic injustice, and war. The excerpt from Theodore Parker, which was the first reading, comes from a sermon title of Justice and the Conscience, which is analytical and quite abstract. It is amazing that people sat in, pulp in churches and listened to hour-long sermons at the level of discourse that Theodore Parker did, but customarily 2,000 people did most Sunday mornings. He delivered this sermon in 1853, and its historical context tells us something about the meaning. In 1804, Haiti had achieved its independence, the first rebellion to succeed in the Western Hemisphere of non-white, non-Europeans. 
This was an important historical marker for the abolitionists, the people who opposed slavery. In 1846 to 1848, the United States was involved in the Mexican-American War. And there was much opposition to that war. In 1848, revolution spread across Europe. Most of those revolutions were not successful. But they were proof of the will of people to go up against oppression. And from around 1830 to 1860, the Underground Railroad freed somewhere between 40,000 and 100,000 slaves. And Theodore Parker had more than a passing acquaintance with the Underground Railroad. In 1850, Unitarian President of the United States, Millard Fillmore, signed the Fugitive Slave Act, which allowed slaves who had escaped to the North to be returned to slavery in the South. There was widespread refusal to obey the Fugitive Slave Law. And in that context, Parker spoke, not being able to see the whole arc of history, but his conviction that it bent toward justice. Between Parker's death in 1860 and King's rise to prominence, just a little under a century later, what happened? The Civil War, 1861 to 65, the end of slavery, Reconstruction, the breaking down of Reconstruction with the imposition of Jim Crow and a new kind of segregation and a new kind of impoverishment for the freed men and women who had formerly been slaves. In the 20th century, the rise of the Klan. Also in the 20th century, the populist movement which worked on economic justice issues, as we would call them today, and was mostly white, but sometimes crossed lines of race. The growth of the labor movement, starting in the 1880s, gathering steam in the 30s and the 40s, and reaching its peak in the 1950s. In that same span, there were two world wars, and the second one followed by the Cold War. And before King came on the scene, there was also the beginning of the formation of a labor and civil rights coalition, something to which King devoted much energy as he became a leader in the civil rights movement. And through this time, with sometimes a step forward, sometimes a step backward, prophetic words and deeds proved true and effective. And justice from time to time triumphed, not steadily, not all the time, but now and again and bit by bit. The case, Brown versus Topeka Board of Education, was already working its way through the courts while King was still working on his doctorate at Boston University. And it's good to remember that that Supreme Court decision came down in 1955, the same year as the Montgomery bus boycott that King led. But during King's public career, the Montgomery bus boycott, other actions throughout the South, the March for Jobs and Freedom in 1963, Freedom Summer in 1964 when black and whites went south to register voters, the Selma to Montgomery March, where the people already working the South were joined from 
by people from all through the North and the West to march. Introduction of civil rights legislation by President Johnson in 1965. And then growing opposition to the Vietnam War, which King joined in to because he identified three evils over and over again, war, economic injustice, and racial injustice. And he saw those tied up together in the Vietnam War. And then his last crusade in 1968, the support of sanitation workers, black unionists organizing and striking in Memphis where he was assassinated. Prophetic truth-telling and action, sometimes effective, sometimes beaten back, but all along the way bending the arc of history. That can stir opposition too. And after publicly opposing the war in Vietnam, King lost some of the labor leadership and support he had so carefully nurtured. And so political leaders who had supported the civil rights work pulled back as well after he spoke out on Vietnam. Well, there are big differences between Theodore Parker and Martin Luther King Jr. One was that it took Parker a whole paragraph to say what King said in one sentence when he distilled it. But even in the Baptist churches in which King preached, they were not listening to hour-long sermons in the 1950s, written in full paragraphs and compound complex sentences as Parker's sermons were. And Parker was full of vitriol. He was courtly and gentle and kind most of the time, but anger ran through his veins. King's nonviolence demanded that he love the enemy. Use force, yes, but still love the enemy. His idea of a loving, personal God demonstrated to him what human beings needed to do. And what human beings needed to do, even when struggling against a great evil, was to still love their opponent, express and show and have compassion and act nonviolently. In his speech titled Beyond Vietnam, King said, here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence when it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear the questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from the, his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. In short, justice would not be complete without reconciliation. Winning a victory with new laws or integrated schools was not the end of the process. The civil rights laws changed behaviors, and indeed that has changed some attitudes over time. And certainly young people today are growing up in a very different world than those of us in our 50s and 60s grew up in. But it is clear that we are far from the beloved community of which King spoke, a community of love and justice and respect for all. And even after two generations of changed behaviors based on the civil rights laws, 
many hearts are still not changed. We see the hearts unchanged in the virulent denial that Barack Obama is a legitimate president. We see the reality of hearts unchanged and pushed back against the victories of the civil rights movement in what was, is now called by Michelle Alexander the new Jim Crow. The way that inordinate numbers of young black men are denied education and imprisoned. The disenfranchisement of mostly black voters in states such as Florida under the bogus label of voter fraud. And this is not the only state. Texas does that too. The increased keeping of guns at home and carrying them in public as if the white man's frontier supposedly closed in the late 1800s had reopened. Sadly, we see a new wave of violence. Trayvon Martin was a black teen killed with a handgun. Chad Olson, the victim in last week's movie theater shooting in Tampa, was a white man. Anger is seething, in part because except in a few locations, this nation has never done the hard truth and reconciliation work that King, of course, saw following the changing of laws which the Union of South Africa did following the end of apartheid, except in a few locations, such as Greensboro, North Carolina, where an incident where the police cooperated with the Klan to kill a group of black and white communists doing an anti-racism march and got away with it. Forty years later, that city worked hard to bring together the people who had been on one side or the other of that violent action and seek truth and reconciliation. He's not done a lot of that work. Yes, changed laws have led to some changed attitudes, in part because our people of two generations beyond are growing up in much more diverse environments than most of us who are in our 60s and 70s did. But there's still seething and anger and the collapse of much of the economy, which has hurt both blacks and whites, has become yet another excuse for anger and prejudice. Well, in the 1850s, Theodore Parker preached with a loaded gun in the pulpit. Why? Remember the Fugitive Slave Act? Members of his congregation who could escape slavery were subject to being captured and returned to slavery in the South. Now, Theodore Parker fondly kept his grandfather's rifle in his study. His grandfather had led sort of the American militia at the Battle of Lexington and Concord. So he kept a loaded handgun in the pulpit when uh, marshals were trying to snatch up freed slaves who had moved north and ship them back to the south. And he announced that if anyone were going to kidnap any of his parishioners, they'd have to get by him to do so.
Something is happening today, though, that is not bending the arc of the moral universe towards justice. And Theodore Parker did not carry a gun around with him. He just had it on the pulpit to make it clear whose side he was in that struggle between oppression and freedom. Something is happening today, that, and it is not bending the arc of the moral universe toward justice. It is dividing and scaring and frightening people and leading to much more violence. So, so let's ask that question again. Who bends the arc of the moral universe? We do, yeah. See, Parker and King, on the one hand, saw the moral arc of the universe as God's work. That was their confidence that it would continue to bend the right way. But they were both deeply engaged in doing the bending. Both built up congregations and other organizations as manifestations and drivers of what King came to call the beloved community. World of love and justice and acceptance and freedom. A beloved community, a just world in which all persons can share equitably in the wealth of the world and freely develop their individual gifts and talents and potential in solidarity with each other. So they both worked hard to bend the moral arc of the universe, but not alone. And they knew they didn't do it alone. Parker's good friends were also in the struggle. Henry David Thoreau, who a lot of people don't know this, was a conductor on the Underground Railroad. There were nights he'd be, go to his friend Ralph Waldo Emerson's house, he lived near Emerson, knock on the door, and say, Waldo, I need your horse and wagon. And of course, Waldo said, certainly. You knew what it was, it was going to be used for. And, and Thoreau would ferry one or two or three slaves on another leg of the Underground Railroad. Louisa May Alcott, who was a Civil War nurse and an advocate for interracial marriage at a time when most abolitionists thought Negroes were inferior to them. And as I said, Emerson not only spoke against slavery, but did much more behind the scenes. And there are many others. Louisa May's father, Bronson, was beaten trying to free a recaptured slave from the county jail. And Parker was among those who raised funds for John Brown's guerrilla warfare against slavery. King also had many colleagues. Three, four had just come to mind, thinking about it. Fred Shuttlesworth, Ralph Abernathy, Jim Lawson. Lawson's still active, well into his 80s. And many, many others. And thousands joined them in boycotts, on marches, in jail, in the struggle. And when the call to come to Selma was issued, many Unitarian Universalist ministers answered the call, including the then minister of this church, Dick Norsworthy, now our minister emeritus. And I'm willing to bet that he's not the only one in this room this morning who took part in that movement. I'm willing to bet that a lot of you then and more recently in other ways have worked to bend the arc of the universe towards justice. In the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the reproductive rights movement, 
working for immigration reform, working through faith and action for strength together and right now and in many, many other ways. That is bending the arc of the moral universe. But it is a slow bending. It was 90 years from the end of the Civil War to Brown versus Board of Education. 90 years between the end of the Civil War and the Montgomery bus boycott. Do we have to keep bending it? You bet we do. So Rebecca Solnit, the journalist I, I mentioned, whom I met in New Orleans working on uh, issues of racial and economic justice in the rebuilding of that city after the hurricanes. He wrote about the length of the arc of history, the length of the arc of justice. So long you can't even see a bend in it. In Tom Dispatch, and then an alternate.com, and then eventually the nation picked it up over the last few weeks. But this is December 22nd. She wrote, Henry David Thoreau wrote books that not many people read when they were published. He famously said of his unsold copies, I now have a library of nearly 900 volumes, over 700 of which I wrote myself. But a South African lawyer of Indian descent named Mohandas Gandhi read Thoreau on civil disobedience and found ideas that helped him fight discrimination in Africa and then liberate his own country from British rule. Martin Luther King Jr. studied Thoreau and Gandhi and put their ideas to work in the United States, while in 1952 the African National Congress and the young Nelson Mandela were collaborating with the South African Indian Congress on civil disobedience campaigns. Solnit goes on to say, you wish you could write Thoreau a letter about all this. He had no way of knowing that what he planted would still be bearing fruit 151 years after his death. But the past doesn't need us, she says. The past guides us. The future needs us. Bending the moral arc of the universe is not a weekend project. As I.F. Stone once said famously, if you've taken on a problem you can solve in your own lifetime, you haven't taken on a big enough problem. So that's why I wanted to put Parker's and King's similar rhetoric in the context of history. We see their examples of what the mid-20th century Unitarian Universalist minister Stephen Hole Fritchman like to call revolutionary patience. We must be patient. Not stop, but be patient. Of more recent studies, Solnit writes, nearly three years after the first sparks of the Arab Spring began, it's wiser to consider it too barely begun rather than ended in failure. More than two years after the first members of Occupy Wall Street began decamping in Zuccotti Park in Lower Manhattan, that movement is not over either, though almost all the encampments have subsided, and the engagement has new names, Occupy Sandy, Strike Debt, and more. That everything continues to metamorphose 
seems a better way to think of social upheavals than obituaries and epitaphs. I take Solnit's wisdom to heart. What if the abolitionists had given up after the failure of John Brown's mission? What if they had given up after the slave Anthony Burns was captured in Boston and returned to the South? What if the civil rights movement had not been reborn after the imposition of Jim Crow? What if people had given up because victories had apparently been snatched away? Ark would have stopped bending. But that's not how we live. Even if the changes we see are small, we keep at the work. We keep at the struggle. There are times when we feel the rush of history forward. We felt that in the 50s and the 60s, the Civil Rights Movement, the 70s, 80s, with the women's movement, and, and at other times in history. And sometimes it seems as if we're being pulled backward. There's a lot of that these days. But the pulling backward in a lot of these cases, still is pulling back into places that are better than the places 50, 60 years ago. The work of bending the arc is not just a matter of winning battles on issues. It is a matter of changing hearts. Those hearts include our own, whichever side of a struggle we are on. When we win a change in a law or a practice, we then need to do the hard work of reconciliation so that people are not dismayed or feeling defeated or cut out because they were on the wrong side of a battle. But as Gandhi showed and as King tried to show and as some of the good people of Greensboro, North Carolina have shown, as people in South Africa have shown, you have to do that hard work. Former adversaries talking together to move on to the next stage after one thing or another has changed. So one more time I ask you, who bends the arc of the universe? Let's do it. <laughs>